The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. have really painted Labour into a corner, aren't they? I mean, <laughs> short of, you know, calling for more money for gerbils, I mean, what you know, what what have they got left? The sort of the longer it went on, the longer I was sort of waiting for a Conservative Chancellor to stand up. For all his intelligence, his judgment may have let him down because he's taking a very big bet on growth. And if that growth doesn't work out, he could come unstuck. How many downloads have we got for Planet Normal? Two million. That's two followed by six zeros. Hey! <laughs> we have Welcome to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast hosted by Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Well, Rishi Sunak's delivered his third budget and he's looking beyond Covid and seeing an economy for a new age of optimism. (laughs) But will the Chancellor's shiny new growth assumptions, his slick PR operation and his boyish grin be enough? For beyond the Whitehall echo chamber, where economic modelling is a dark political art rather than any kind of science, in the real world, the UK economy seems to be stalling. But despite that... Rishi's relying on the economy growing by a very hefty 6.5% this year compared to the official 4% estimate back in March. And it's that growth, the Chancellor hopes, that will deliver the tax revenues that make his sums add up. It's a pretty big bet, co-pilot. He could become known as Risky Rishi. (laughs) Well, you think Rishi's risky. Wait till you start talking to your co-pilot just returned from an awards ceremony lunch. Celebratory. Celebratory. Your co-pilot is the winner of the Edgar Wallace Trophy for writing of the highest quality, Alison Pearson. Is that the Wallace and Gromit Trophy? (laughs) It is the Wallace and Gromit. Cheese, Gromit. Cracking prose, Gromit. Of course, you're always (laughs) delighted to win an award, aren't you, Halligan? Because it means you're not sacked for another year. So that's very good. No, it was a lovely award ceremony. Uh, Charming chairman of the London Press Club, I think former foreign minister, came up and declared himself an avowed Planet Normal fan. Many Planet Normal fans came up, which was absolutely delightful. And I thought you would enjoy mercifully ribbing me about writing of the highest quality. But I, Liam, I think it's probably a tribute to my services to hospital bed occupancy. What do you think? Anyway, look, I haven't watched any of this budget, although I read all the pre-coverage, which I imagine took in most of it. So we basically have a Labour Chancellor. I'm feeling a bit nostalgic for Gordon Brown's (laughs) prudence. Do you remember prudence? Prudence with a purpose. (laughs) Prudence with a purpose. The Edinburgh spinster who was very reluctant to give away her last sixpence. So A, how much money does the United Kingdom have left? 25p. Can I buy a packet of wine gums? And do the sums add up? Well, the first thing to say, Alison, after that quite extraordinary (laughs) response from you, is that I'm proud of you. You are a fantastic writer and you deserve whatever awards you get. And I actually think that it's wonderful how over the last 75 episodes or whatever it is, Mm. you've managed to combine your column writing with Planet Normal. And I think they help each other. And I think a lot of the readers and listeners would agree And it's great to have your columns because they do really do provide the sort of jumping off point for our discussions. And the listeners, Liam, let's pay tribute to the listeners who have fed in so much, haven't they? There's been this, I hate the word synergy because it sounds like the thing some well, NHS You basically cut and paste their emails and <laughs> chuck them in your column. I mean, let's be honest. It's, it's a, yes. Now, can we just quote the great T.S. Eliot who said, <laughs> immature poets borrow, mature poets steal. I am a mature poet and I steal absolutely shamefacedly from the one Wonderful listeners of Planet Normal. But yeah, anyway, but just before we launch into the Halligan explanation, the complete explication of the budget, how many downloads have we got for Planet Normal? Two million. Hey! That's two followed by six zeros. <laughs> it's a very, very small number compared to the amount that's been given to the NHS. But still, in the universe <laughs> of Planet Normal, that's quite a high number. Thank you to everyone for listening and please keep on. We're so thrilled to have that many downloads. Come on, Halligan. Budget, sums add up, socialist chancellor. What's going to happen? 
It was a very political budget, and it strikes me that this was a high-spending budget from a chancellor who's taking a very big bet on growth. And I just reflected yeah. that in my opening comments. Back in March, the Office of Budget Responsibility, which is the sort of government's official forecasting watchdog, an independent forecasting watchdog, said the UK economy would grow this year by about 4%. Rishi Sunak saying actually the UK economy will grow this year by 6.5%. That's a huge uplift in that growth forecast. And that growth forecast is the single most important number in the sea of figures and data that you know are produced on any budget day mm. because it drives all other numbers if you have 6.5% growth, you can forecast much, much, much bigger tax revenues in the next two or three years. And he laid out his spending for the next two or three years than would otherwise be the case. So you can allocate that money and announce it and get bullish newspaper headlines from those announcements. But it relies on the growth taking place. And that's my big fear, Alison. If this growth doesn't take place, mm. then we'll have to borrow even more money at a time when the amount of um, interest the government has to pay on its debt, it's the interest rates are still very low because the Bank of England itself is creating money to buy lots of government debt. But we're already spending billions of pounds on debt interest and those payments, that dead money, will only go up. So I do think Rishi Sunak is a very clever guy. He's a very financially sophisticated chancellor. He's extremely numerate as a former sort of Goldman Sachs investment banker. But I do think for all his intelligence, his judgment may have let him down because he's taking a very big bet on growth. And if that growth doesn't work out, he could come unstuck. So some of this largesse. So did he do the thing, A, lifting the minimum wage to just over nine quid? Is that right? So giving your average full-time worker £1,000 more a year. That was the prediction. Yeah, let me give you a few of the sort of budget headlines because yeah. we know our Planet Normal listeners, they often listen to us when they're walking the dog on a Thursday morning or they might not have put their nose in a newspaper yet or heard on the radio. So... The overall theme of the budget, Alison, was an economy fit for a new age of optimism. Rishi Sunak was very much trying to push the sort of public consciousness on from COVID, talking about a post-pandemic age, fingers crossed. Mm. There was about six billion quid more for the NHS to address the huge backlog those 5 million or so people on a waiting list, that's on top of the additional 36 billion that came from the national insurance rises that we discussed on Planet Normal a uh, little more than a month ago. Yeah. There was six to seven billion pounds for levelling up projects for transport as the Tories try and curry favour in those red wall seats. Those transport projects were in places like Leeds, Aberdeen, the Northwest, Wales, the Southwest, parts of the country that have sometimes missed out on our national prosperity in recent decades. Yeah. A big increase of £3 billion for skills, particularly apprenticeships for trades, construction, plumbing and so on. The minimum wage did go up, as you said, from 8.91 to 9.50. That's not really Rishi's wage rise, though, because businesses will pay for that. Absolutely. About 2 million workers are on the minimum wage. That's a £1,000 increase if you're working 40 hours a week. But a lot of that, Alison, will be offset by tax increases, fuel bill increases, cost of living rises and so on. A public sector pay rise will come in in April. We don't know how much it will be for nurses, doctors, teachers, armed forces. The independent pay review bodies will decide that in the spring. You had more money for Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. A big area where I think Rishi Sunak has dropped the ball, and we've discussed this in the past, is business rates. These are the taxes that businesses pay on the physical value of their premises. So if you're a retailer, you're a factory owner, if you invest in your business, buy more capital equipment, extend your retail, you pay higher business rates. The big tech giants, the online retailers, they don't pay business rates to the same extent that so-called bricks and mortar retailers do. So the high street retailers can't compete with the online giants. Business rates puts them at a disadvantage. We thought there was going to be a big change in business rates, a pro-business move, mm. reducing them significantly. But he's only reduced them by, for one year, Alison, 
And if you enhance the value of your business, you pay higher business rates forever. But he's only given retailers a one-year reprieve, which isn't very much. And mm. during that one year, they'll pay 50% business rates rather than the full whack. But business rates go way beyond retailers. As I've said, it's all kinds of physical businesses. So I thought he did very little for businesses. And afterwards, I talked to Mike Cherry, who is someone I admire. He runs the Federation of Small Businesses, a very important lobby group in this country. And he was remarkably underwhelmed mm. by what the Chancellor had done on business rates. But despite that, there's still lots and lots and lots of extra spending in this. The, the headline number, Alison, £150 billion of extra spending during this parliament, 3.8% growth a year in real terms, in terms of spending. That makes it very, very hard for Labour to oppose the Tories mm. when they're spending so much money. But a lot of that spending money has come from that growth assumption. And if that growth assumption doesn't work out, then borrowing is going to soar. I did see Rachel Reeves on Channel 4 News last night and I you know I think we both admire her I think she's a very very sane and solid performer certainly uh, compared to some of the other members of the shadow cabinet but it occurred to me Liam that the Tories have really painted labor into a corner aren't they I mean short of calling for more money for gerbils. I mean, what have they got left? I mean, she literally was sort of sitting there. As you say, they've raised the minimum wage. They've taken the freeze off the public sector wages. I mean, they have done this brilliant thing about making Labour even more irrelevant than it is already. But for me, as a sort of, you know, middle of the road conservative voter, I'm just thinking, where the hell are they getting this money from? I mean, lifting the public sector pay freeze for 18 months. A lot of these public sector people, not all, but lots of them have been working from home. They've been saving money. They haven't had transport. They haven't had to pay out for lunch. Uh, We've got private sector wages rising. These things, as you say, certainly the private sector stuff, this is being paid for by businesses which are coming out of this pandemic absolutely shell-shocked. And I guess I would say as someone who's quite a natural supporter of the government, I'm I'm kind of faintly bemused and appalled. I mean, where is thrift? Where is the putting some stuff by for the rainy day just in case? You know, I mean, it, it just feels very uncertain to me. It, 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 I don't know. Once again, we come to that word unconservative. Is is this an unconservative budget? It's so reassuring, co-pilot, that your instincts <laughs> remain <laughs> sound. I agree with you, and I think a lot of Planet Normal listeners will agree with you as well, in that business is really labouring under a very heavy burden at the moment, mm. particularly those small and medium-sized enterprises that we try and champion on The Telegraph. We try and champion on Planet Normal, don't we? We try and champion yeah. them here at GB News. Why? Because they employ the majority of people in this country and they are the source of so much of the innovation and growth that keeps us broadly a dynamic, prosperous economy. And they are facing increases in national insurance contributions, not just for workers, which businesses will end up paying, but also for businesses, which of course businesses will end up paying. They are facing no reprieve or very little unless they're retailers in business rates. They are facing an increase from 19 to 25% in corporation tax. I mean, that's a huge increase. If yeah. you're a business operating on a 2 or 3% margin and suddenly your corporation tax has gone up from 19 to 25 B in the pound, that's massive. All those things are coming down the track. Then the higher minimum wage. No one begrudges people a bit more money, but businesses have to pay for that. So I do think that the Chancellor and the government has not recognised the extent to which businesses are struggling as this pandemic ends. And then on top of that, of course, you've got energy price rises, you've got all the supply chain issues. There was nothing in this budget for heavy corporate users of energy, like the steel sector, manufacturers. You know, steel works in this country, Alison, they still employ over 30,000 people, right? Often in a lot of those red wall seats, nothing for them. They're facing enormous energy price rises. There's no energy price cap, as as we said on Planet Normal, for businesses. That only applies to households. So I think your instincts are right that he hasn't helped businesses that much. And he's basically splurged lots and lots of money in a kind of feel-good way 
to consumers, particularly public sector workers. And that public sector pay freeze, you rightly mentioned, remember, it didn't include the NHS and it didn't include anybody under 24 grand. They haven't had their wages frozen. But now across the full gamut, the 5.5 million public sector workers, almost all of them, according to the independent pay review body, early indications are in for a pay rise when they already have often much better conditions than the vast majority of private sector workers in terms of pension rights and holiday entitlement and sick leave and and other conditions of employment. This isn't a race to the bottom, but there is a real fear here. If you consider that 2 million people on the minimum wage are going to get a pay rise and 5.5 million people in the public sector are going to get a pay rise. My maths tells me that's 7.5 million people. Well, if I tell you the workforce is upwards of 30 million people, that's an awful lot of people, all of them in the private sector, not the lowest paid, but not necessarily well paid, who ain't going to get a pay rise unless they hammer it out of their employers because the employers often, or unless they have very in-demand skills because employers often will be struggling under these other concerns and burdens that we've been discussing. Something we both wrote about this week was this massive shelling out to the NHS, which now accounts for almost 44% of government spending. I mean, I'm guessing that Sajid Javid, Rishi Sunak, Boris... I think all the things we've been talking about on Planet Normal the last 18 months, I think it's it's hitting home that there is this massive death toll coming down the line from the NHS. I don't know if you saw, Liam, it was really fascinating this week. There was a select committee where cancer specialists were giving evidence and they admitted that cancer services had not been closed down in the United States or in many European countries. But they said, we didn't have the setup here to allow that to go on continuing cancer services. That's actually not true. We know that the Royal Marsden, one of the great cancer hospitals in London, kept its cancer services going in Cambridge. They actually moved their cancer services into one of the private hospitals. The government requisitioned the private hospitals at a cost of about 400 million quid a month. And the NHS didn't use two-thirds of those hospitals just let that fall in. Yeah, unbelievable. Unbelievable. I mean, It's I, like they were a very expensive publicity stunt. Like the Nightingale hospitals, which are basically kind of scenery, weren't they, in an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical? But look, so today in the budget, or yesterday, is it when people are listening to this, Rishi Sunak's giving another $5.9 billion Uh, I mean, these are staggering sums. And I quoted you in my column this week saying £5,000 million again gone to the NHS and the government, which gave an extra £63.4 billion to the NHS in 2020 to deal with COVID. This year, before today's bung, the budget bung this week, the health service has already been granted £12 billion maintenance. And let's not forget, co-pilot, the £36 billion additional funding in the form of the health and social care levy, which is going to be deducted from our pay packets come the spring. And What occurs to me is at least when Tony Blair and Gordon Brown were bunging money at the health service, they were attaching conditions to these, you know, unspeakable sums. And what we know, Halligan, I guess, isn't it, is that it will not be enough. Last week we had Matthew Taylor coming out, you know, this is all He runs the NHS Confederation, the sort of lobby group for the health service. Absolutely. And this week, Dr. Leila McKay, Director of Policy at the NHS Confederation, who said, that health leaders would welcome the funding. Oh, good. Well done. But it still falls short of what is needed to get services completely back on track. And you actually think, what will it take? This is going to be my crusade now because I obviously wrote a very, very angry column this week because I cannot believe, Liam, that the state of the NHS now, the, you know, the way it's letting down people, the spending is above the OECD average as a percentage of GDP, second only to the USA, and it's in a pretty dreadful state. And I think I suspect 
that Sajid Javid, the health secretary, is well aware with all these huge amounts of money now going to diagnostic centres. They know, Liam, they know what's going to happen is the excess death rate is going to go up. The 450 people on average who die of cancer every single day, that number is going to we should be all planet normalists. We should be watching that number. And I think it's in a terrible state. And what I'm, I suppose what I'm really concerned about, we are now the party of the NHS. I mean, I can't even add up those numbers. You could add up those numbers. It's tens of billions of pounds. For what? You know, are we going to see any reform? Is that money going to be recruit? We have so few doctors and nurses. Absolutely shocking in the Western world. So shocking that we don't, I think we're heading. I'm predicting now a a maternity crisis. I'm hearing shocking stories about mothers and babies. And I'm thinking the Tories are shelling out huge, unprecedented amounts of money to the NHS. What is going to be calling these people to account? We actually saw the BMA this week, my friends at the BMA, you know how much they love me, Halligan, actually saying that they were going to be balloting GPs for strike action or even, this is my favourite thing of the week, even giving GPs an incentive, paying GPs to see patients face to face. (laughs) You and I agree on this, Alison, don't we? We are both fierce advocates and defenders staunch defenders of free at the point of use. And this is the problem with the debate in the UK. You can't talk about trying to reform the NHS, trying to get more bang for our buck, trying to make an organisation with 1.3 million employees. I think it's the third biggest employer in the world, single organisation after the US Army and the the Chinese Red Army. So I think it's the (laughs) biggest civilian employer in the world. Um, (laughs) Mind-blowing. We think it could work a lot better. And we think that not because we're trained medics, but because we spent, you know, our journalistic careers talking to insiders within the NHS and being citizens who use the NHS, us and our families and our extended families and our friendship groups and so on. And this is the thing, because it's so sanctified, because it's so deified, because it is the new national religion any argument that it shouldn't get more and more and more and more and more money, and that is the only answer, is treated with suspicion by a lot of our political and media class. And just think of the numbers. We spent £212.1 billion, the health department did, in 2020-2021. And that was 30% up on the year before, okay, because of COVID. Mm. But it's 78% up on just a decade ago. (laughs) These are huge, huge numbers. And yet it's worth saying the excellent Institute for Fiscal Studies in a joint study just before the pandemic with the King's Fund, with the Nuffield Trust. I mean, these are absolutely impeccably influential and respected institutions. Listen to this. This was an investigation into our NHS. Among its strengths, the NHS does better than health systems in comparable countries at protecting people from heavy financial costs when they are ill. Yeah, because it's free. Its main weaknesses is in healthcare outcomes. I mean, they're the only outcomes that matter, aren't they, really? What is that for, exactly? (laughs) The UK appears, this is still the, the report, the UK appears to perform less well than similar countries on the overall rate at which people die when successful medical care could have saved their lives. That's absolutely ghastly thing to have to read. Mm. The report goes on. Although the gap has closed over the last decade, this is the decade to 2018-19, although the gap has closed over the last decade for stroke and several forms of cancer, good stuff, the mortality rate in the UK among people treated for some of the biggest causes of death, including cancer, heart attacks and stroke, is higher than average among comparable countries. The UK also has high rates of child mortality around birth. Now, we support the NHS free at the point of use. We are proud that it is free at the point of use. But when you've got the likes of the IFS, the King's Fund and the Nuffield Foundation saying that after an extensive investigation into the NHS, that our health outcomes in terms of saving people from death are below the average among comparable countries. We simply cannot say any more. It's the best in the world. We have to look at ways of reforming it while maintaining free at the point of use. And the trouble is, Alison, there doesn't seem to be one iota of appetite for that agenda anywhere at the top of government, even from a chancellor who is a self-confessed follower of Milton Friedman rather than John Maynard Keynes, 
and, as he calls himself, a Thatcherite. But I would predict, Liam, I could be wrong, but let's just see. I think the public mood is going to darken in the next three to five years because I think there will be very few people in this country who don't know a friend or a family member who has been undiagnosed or who hasn't been able to get the treatment that they need because the the situation with the waiting list, and I think this is why they are sending this tsunami of funding for diagnostic hubs. It's a literally closing the stables after the entire herd has bolted, as far as I'm concerned. There are going to be tens of thousands of premature deaths coming. It's going to be absolutely dreadful. We've been a bit sort of shaky or a bit uncertain about Sajid Javid. But, you know, honestly, I do think now that he is absolutely standing up to this medical blob. Because what's happening, it's a completely political mafia stitch up. So on Planet Normal, we've really been lucky, haven't we, having the amazing statistics from George, our NHS insider. And what we're seeing is misinformation from the NHS, which is then picked up by their allies in the media, in the unions, in the BMA, in the NHS Confederation, which is then used as a stick to beat the government with into let's bring in Plan B. And that's been something that's been you will have noticed, really happening this week. Let's go back into restrictions, despite the fact that we know that the restrictions cause the economic harm, which then means, guess what? We don't have any money for the NHS. So it's this absolutely circular logic. But we did, Liam, this week have a leaked Cabinet Committee report which said that these Plan B restrictions, which Matthew Taylor and others have described as minor inconveniences, the so-called minor inconveniences, would cost the economy up to £18 billion even when we're going gazillion whatever with Rishi, the, you know, these, these are huge costs. So even though so many people now are double jabbed, the COVID cases have been falling over the last week, but this clamour for Plan B from leading Labour figures, from figures in the unions, in the NHS, I think is absolutely disgusting, quite honestly, at this stage. Totally unjustified and incredibly damaging. And 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 by the way, co-pilot, this is something that validates what you were banging on about last banging week. Banging on? Banging on? Did I mention I've won the Edgar Wallace trophy for writing of the highest quality? Anyway, no, setting oh, geez, that aside. So this great guy, actually, I think a new Planet Normal hero, Andrew Pollard, he is one of the geniuses, co-inventors of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. And Sir Andrew Pollard stood up and told a select committee very much what my co-pilot said last week. The UK shouldn't be blamed for having high numbers of cases because guess what? We are doing so much testing, which is why we've got so many cases. Sir Andrew also said, I think we need to move to a completely different system of clinically driven testing. In other words, testing people who are unwell rather than having regular testing of those people who are well. So I think that's where we are, Liam, now. It's a very interesting moment, this plan B clamour going on at a time when it's completely clear that the collateral damage from the restrictions is really kicking in. I think there's a lot in what you say, Alison. No one's accusing the NHS of deliberately misleading the public or any kind of criminal activity or anything like that. But we are saying that the statistics put into the public domain are selective. And I think the NHS insider who we have quoted for many months on Planet Normal, George, who has full access to the NHS data and feeds it to us and we report it, he or she, we don't disclose, have proven that selectivity consistently over the weeks and months. And I'm really glad you mentioned Sir Andrew Pollard, of course, one of the creators of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, when he pointed out that, quotes, if you look across Western Europe, we have about 10 times more tests done per day per head of population. Now, I've been saying that in my columns and on Planet Normal for a very long time. Lots of people have been saying this, but it just hasn't broken through into sort of mainstream conversation, even though it's unanswerably true. And I've got the Our World in Data dashboard in front of me, which I look at every single 
day. I know how to live, Alison. The tragic. I know how to live. <laughs> Occasionally, listeners, he, he pops down to Costcutter to buy the paper, but mainly he's looking at our world in data. <laughs> <laughs> I know how to live. Daily COVID-19 test per 1,000 people. UK, it's just over 13 tests per 1,000 people per day. Yeah, In France, that number is less than five. Uh, in America, it's even less than that. That's why, and France is pretty high among other West European countries in terms of the testing. That's why Sir Andrew Pollard, who can read a spreadsheet, as can I, as can you, funnily enough, since you've been on Planet Normal, well, he has said, and it's unanswerably true, and now it isn't some kind of Trumpian conspiracy theory, no. Sir Andrew Pollard has said it, that we are testing a lot, 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 lot more than the rest of Western Europe and the US. And that's why when you report the number of cases, not the share or incidence, the number of cases is high because we're doing so many more tests. I have to say, Alison, there's been a lot around this week, not just the budget statement, many, many other aspects of the news. But I'm particularly glad that that fact, Mm. among all others, finally has broken through. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper, and you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast to tell you about another Telegraph show, mine. As a Telegraph's chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at The Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea... Please search Chopper's Politics wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio! Now, Alison, because it's budget week, we're going to depart from our usual planet normal format where we interview a person, you interview them or I interview them. And we're going to interview someone together live here at Telegraph Towers. (laughs) And that person is none other than our extremely distinguished Telegraph business columnist, Ben Wright. Ben, thanks for joining us. Not at all. Thanks for having me. So, Ben, you and I at least have just watched the budget because Alison, of course, was getting the... Did she mention (laughs) she won the Edgar Wallace Award for good writing? Something about cheese. I don't know. She's too modest to mention it herself. But (laughs) what did you make of it? Not the award, the budget. Well, the award is richly deserved. Richly deserved, obviously. The The budget was... Kind of extraordinary, really. I was listening to it. It was a good performance by Rishi Sunak. But the sort of the longer it went on, the longer I was sort of waiting for a conservative chancellor to stand up. And yeah. there was a point about halfway through the speech where he talked about a, t- a tax break for shipping companies if they, if they fly the red ensign. And it was, I think, the first thing he said that couldn't have been delivered by a Labour chancellor. And it was actually the first point that the backbenchers behind him got enthusiastic as well. On the whole, I thought it was a. Most of it could have been delivered by a Labour Chancellor. And in fact, the IFS said that it reminded them more of a budget delivered by Gordon Brown than one delivered by George Osborne. It was sort of anti austerity, lots and lots of spending. Well, I haven't written a column on the budget for The Telegraph today, the first time in many years, because I've been presenting on GB News. But I'm sure you have been for Thursday's paper, the day that listeners will hear this discussion. But were I writing a column today, I would nose it on that very fact that Rachel Reeves, Shadow Chancellor, stepped in to respond to the budget. Traditionally, of course, it's the opposition, Keir Starmer, that responds to the budget, but he can't because he's isolating, because he's got COVID. And there's a historical echo there because, of course, in the early 90s, Gordon Brown had to step in and deliver the budget response at short notice because John Mm -hmm. Smith was ill. And that was the making of Gordon Brown as a national figure. And I do think Rachel Reeves did pretty well on a very difficult wicket. Responding to the budget is the hardest thing in opposition politics because you don't get to see the speech early. You have to respond to the rabbit out of the hats that the Chancellor pulls and it's very, very difficult. But I agree with you. Huge increases in spending, £150 over this parliament, yet more money for the NHS, increased burden on business, not much reprieve in terms of business rates, just a Mm one-year moratorium, if you like, and only for 
retailers and retailers they only pay about 8 billion out of the 30 billion or so that businesses pay as a whole in business rates what Alison and I have been discussing is the bet that Rishi Sunak has taken on growth what do you make of that 6.5% growth forecast for this year and what will happen if he doesn't reach it your point about Rachel Reed's well made I, I agree she did respond well thought it was a good performance from her and I've heard it said that the cabinet of the Labour front bench politicians, she's one of the ones that they fear the most. And, mm. and you could kind of see why in her response. But it was interesting, her very first attack line was that Rishi Sunak was cutting tax for bankers. Simply not true. He's cutting the surcharge for them. And the surcharge is a top-up that was introduced by George Osborne after the financial crisis. And Rishi Sunak's cutting that from 8% to 3%. But that's only because corporation tax is going up from 19% to 25%. So all in with the surcharge and the corporation tax. Banks from April 2023 were paying 27%, will now be paying 28%. So taxes for banks are going up. And Rachel Reeve said he was cutting it. And it was telling that she used that attack line because there was not much else (laughs) that Labour could disagree with in what he delivered. And yes, you mentioned the growth forecast. I mean, clearly the OBR is much, much more optimistic now than it was earlier in the year. It's upgraded its growth forecasts. It's downgraded its expectations for the scarring that it thinks is going to happen because of the pandemic. And that has effectively, it's all sort of accounting and numbers moving around, but it's effectively handed Rishi Tunak $100 billion to spend over the rest of this parliament. In projected future tax revenues, right? And that scarring is the damage that the pandemic lockdown has done to the economy. Exactly, exactly. And now the OBR says we're going to recover all of the uh, lost output because of the pandemic by the turn of this year. And it was predicting that would be sort of sometime next year. So it's a much better forecast. And there's probably some room in there for the OBR to upgrade in the future as well. So I don't think it's risky for Sunak to sort of base his plans on that. I think if there are going to be changes to the OBR's forecasts, the chances are that they'll be improving rather than downgrading their forecasts. So I don't think that's risky. What I think is risky is the rhetoric and the fact that the sort of positive rhetoric and how the economy is growing and how it's booming, because I don't think people are going to feel that in the coming years. We've obviously got inflation. I was digging into the OBR numbers and deep in that document, it's got a forecast for the growth of real household disposable income. And obviously, that's really where the the rubber hits the road for most people, how much money they've got and how much that is going to increase. And it's really, really poor, 0.8% a year for the next five years. And that is well below historical growth levels. So I don't think people are going to feel much better off in the coming years. This is what I keep thinking as ordinary person. I mean, We've got the health and social care levy, the lift in national insurance, haven't we? Plus, by April, I think the average fuel bill is going to be two grand. I mean, these are, you know, these are significant sums from people who are coming out of a pandemic. I think a lot of people are still feeling quite bruised. I mean, this will sound a bit strange, but I, you know, I have had to come to London a couple of times in the last week. My confidence, I'm normally a reasonably confident person. I'm still not frightened of the virus, but just everything feels a bit much. And I, I'm just imagining a lot of people feel a bit overwhelmed. Yeah. We've been out of the office. We've been out of her habit of, you know, putting on shoes and proper clothes and all that sort of thing. We've talked before, Liam, haven't we, about people feeling apprehensive? I mean, that's my sense of the fact. And the, I think the fact that people are not feeling that it's all rip-roaring and it's all getting back on its feet. I think people are feeling much more cautious and, and worried. Well, here we have an honest disagreement, a difference of opinion. I do think that 6.5% growth is a risky assumption, Ben. It's a perfectly reasonable discussion to have. And the reason I think it's a risky assumption is because the last monthly GDP number that's been confirmed is a 0.1% increase in July, which was a stalling of the economy and much lower than expected. Consumer confidence has been seriously dented. You look at the PMI surveys of business leader opinion, and they are still above 50, which means growth, as every business journalist knows, but they are heading in the wrong direction. And and I'm generally an optimistic person. And I sincerely hope that, Ben, 
you are correct that any revision of that 6.5% growth number for 2021 is upward. I, I really want that to happen, but I suspect it won't be, certainly not in real terms when you consider inflation. But we'll have to see, won't we? I thought a really interesting bit of Kremlinology, which I would put in a column where I'm writing one, and obviously I'll be writing one this Sunday, is how the Chancellor spoke of inflation. Mm. Because, as you know well, Ben, Andrew Bailey, the Bank of England governor, only recently acknowledged that inflation would reach, he said, 4% by the end of this year. The notion that it might peak at 4% then come down again because he has insisted it's transitory, this inflation increase, something that I've disagreed with. Rishi Sunak, instead of saying inflation would reach 4% by the end of the year, he said inflation would average 4% over the next year, Yeah, which is a completely different kettle of fish. The language is almost identical, but mathematically they are worlds apart. If you're averaging 4% over the next year, that means you could go 5 6 7 8% and then come back down again to average 4%. Unless I'm wrong, those forecasts would likely have been reached before the latest spikes in gas prices. So it could almost certainly be higher. Absolutely. Another piece of interesting criminology was when Rishi Sunak said, I can't remember the precise verb that he used, but he said he had written to the Bank of England to reconfirm or reaffirm or affirm his determination to bear down on inflation, almost as if he's chiding the Bank of England for not taking inflation seriously enough. Yes. So he's only saying what we know to be true. But the, the mere fact of him saying it at the dispatch box and affirming it, reaffirming it, whatever it was, was odd because it sounded like he wasn't telling us anything new. But the mere fact of him saying it was reasserting it. Absolutely. I thought that was very interesting choreography there between the Chancellor and the Bank of England, maybe even aimed at the governor himself, not to put him in the frame, but he is in the frame here. And your bread and butter is following business journalism and the MPC, the Monetary Policy Committee and all the rest of it. We've got a you know the next meeting of the Monetary Policy Committee. They have voted unanimously to keep interest rates where they are for months and months and months and months. It now looks as if out of the nine of them, one or two may vote to raise interest rates. The money markets have already priced in interest rate rises, given the inflation rhetoric. It may be that those interest rate rises don't happen in November, December, as the money markets think. But it may be we certainly start to get an active and live debate about raising interest rates on the MPC now with one, two, maybe three of the nine voting. And it's clear that the Chancellor wants to signal that he is on the side of the more hawkish members of the Monetary Policy Committee, even though elsewhere in the speech, Ben, as you will also have picked up, you and the rest of the Telegraph's excellent business team, the Chancellor pointed out that for every 1% increase in interest rates, it's going to cost the Exchequer billions of pounds in additional interest on public sector debt. The other interesting part of that is obviously he talked about inflation but it was also could it be said to be an inflationary budget because he's obviously giving pay rises to a whole load of people as well he's Mm. saying he's going to raise salaries for public sector workers there's obviously a big hike in the minimum wage as well do you think that could add to inflationary pressures yeah that's what i was going to say to you liam i mean the i word isn't it inflation this is what keeps going round in my mind i mean the chance that we saw under a month ago at the Conservative Party conference was standing there saying, you know, I'm not a tax and spend kind of chancellor. And you think, (laughs) will the real Rishi Sunak please stand up? Who are these two guys who are telling us simultaneously, apparently entirely different things? He did the same today. I mean, a lot of the heavy lifting on taxes has already happened. You mentioned them earlier. There's obviously Mm. the hike in corporation tax earlier this year, increase in national insurance contributions, the freeze in personal allowance, Mm. broken the triple lock on pensions. Buried in the detail in the documents today, he's looking at possibly an online sales tax as well. So he wasn't really hiking taxes today, but he was obviously spending a lot of that money. And yet at the end of the speech, there was a sort of some rhetoric which was completely at odds with what had come before. Mm. And he was talking about how the Tory party was still a party of low taxes, how the big moments in life did not involve the government. So he was in favour of a smaller state. And yet he has massively increased the size of the state 
And it was almost like everything that went before he had delivered because Boris had told him to. But at the end, he was sort of indicating where his true feelings were. And partly that's because taxes have been hiked so, so much. He's gone big, he's gone early, and presumably he's hoping that later he'll be able to cut taxes in time for the next election and deliver Mm. some good news on that. But there is this massive disconnect between what he's saying and what he's doing. Ben, it's been great to have you on Planet Normal. We're both huge fans of your writing and readers can follow your columns in the Telegraph print edition and, of course, online, not least your column in today's paper about Rishi Sunak's third budget. Right, Halligan, before we go on to our fantastic listener emails, I have a nomination for Numpty of the Week. Are you ready? Go on, then. Numpty of the Week, Halligan, Imperial College London has been told to remove a bust of Thomas Henry Huxley because he might now be called racist. And what do we know Thomas Henry Huxley for, Halligan? I have no idea. He was a famous slave abolitionist. So even <laughs> this is this is where we are now. You can have campaigned for many years to abolish slavery. But if you've ever said a word out of place about a chicken tikka masala, you're doomed. Anyway, now on to our fantastic listener emails, a selection of the wonderful messages that you send each week to Liam and I at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. Here's one that caught my eye. This is from Charlie Robinson. Charlie is has been a long-term brilliant scientific support to Planet Normal. And this is one of many emails we've had about the NHS funding this week. Dear co-pilots, the NHS is dying from institutional type 2 diabetes. It's been chronically overfed and is now grossly fat in the form of layers of management and bureaucracy. It is addicted to sugar, lucre and so deaf to all normal signals for managing resources. It's suffering from peripheral vascular disease in its feet that's on the ground GPs, which have largely gone numb and some toes have gone black and retinopathy is rendering it blind to its situation. It must surely soon collapse under its own bloated mass of inefficiency, terminally ill and it's going to need a very big coffin. If this diagnosis holds, rather than feeding it yet further, as Rishi Sunak has done, its only hope lies in bariatric surgery. It has no will of its own to lose weight, so needs stomach stapling. Best regards on this week's flight, Charlie. Thanks for that. Good old Charlie. This is from Keith. Recreational sailors say that boats are holes in the water into which you pour your money. The same is true of the NHS. Mixed public-private systems, those that prevail in grown-up systems, like those in, well, insert the name of any advanced country here, deliver better results and at lower costs across the board. To that list of countries, we may now add Pakistan. Like many major charities, the NHS is, to borrow a pithy phrase from down under, a self-licking ice cream. (laughs) While it purports to exist for the public good, its true purpose is self-maintenance and self-aggrandisement. Health outcomes are a byproduct. And here's an important email from Mary. Liam and Alison, I've spent the last 18 months wailing and gnashing my teeth at the lies being peddled from the politicians and scientists about COVID. I thought I'd seen it all. But then this landed on my doorstep this morning, twice actually, for my two daughters who are eligible for the latest 12 to 15 vaccination rollout. It's from the NHS telling me that I can book my child's jab now and they are, quote, awaiting guidance from the JCVI as to when my child will require a second COVID jab. A second jab? The JCVI hasn't even approved the first jab for that age group. This is outrageously misleading and millions of parents will not be aware of the circumstances of how vaccinations for this age have been brought in. Not everyone has been to planet normal, more's the pity. It's Johnson, I can't call him Boris anymore, and his chief medical minions that have decided this, not the experts. Just when I think the NHS can't stoop any lower, they prove me wrong. Keep up the amazing work, you two. Liam, well done for socking it to Nikki Campbell and that no mark from the NHS Alliance, whatever that may be. Yours an impotent rage, Mary. And also from another parent, this is Rob, who describes himself as a father of three university-aged children. 
Would you consider campaigning on the cost of student loans? It needs to be brought into the public domain. The March RPI fixing is currently trading at 6.53% and thus the rate of interest on student loans will be 9.53%. Yet one can fix a five-year mortgage at 1%. It's wrong for young people in so many ways. I completely agree, Rob, as the mother of a young man at university. I do think it's daylight robbery and Halligan and I will be returning to that subject with some personal interest in the future. And this is from Ross. NHS managers, chief execs and quangocrats must be rubbing their hands with glee at all those extra taxpayer billions heading their way. More bumper pay rises and perks. Pay for senior NHS managers has been rising at 10% per annum while nurses' pay has been frozen for most of the past 10 years. One thing for sure, not a penny of it will be spent on the front line where it's needed most. Patients will continue to receive appalling and in many cases unsafe care due to a pitiful lack of clinical staff way below the numbers found in other developed countries. Thanks for that, Ross. And here's an email from Charlie which will speak to the heart the belligerent heart of my beloved co-pilot Halligan. Charlie says, How the bally dare Nikki Campbell criticise one of the few authentic mouthpieces for the silent majority of this country? Nikki, Mr. Self-Inflicted Love Bites, not sure what that's a reference to, is one of the reasons I decided to stop listening to the BBC as I could no longer stand his self-satisfied, condescending, overpaid and feeble pronouncements. Liam and Alison do a heroic job and I'm going to need to hear your dulcet tones more than ever this forthcoming winter if these lockdown loons have their way. Please don't stop. We won't, Charlie. We won't. So that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Email of the week, Alison, it's your turn. Email of the week is going to be the one from Rob about student loans, which speaks to the benighted hearts of all parents with children at university. Rob, if you could send us your full address to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. And then the great Theodora will send you one of the highly coveted Planet Normal mugs. If you enjoy Planet Normal, and we've been meeting many people the last week or so, some of them even showing signs of sanity who absolutely love the podcast, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It does really help others to find us so the Planet Normal family can grow. And every Thursday morning, Telegraph subscribers can talk to me on the Telegraph website. Unbelievably, I will be answering your queries on the budget on Thursday. Well, good luck with that. Halligan will be busily involved elsewhere, but I I may field some questions to him on WhatsApp. Find the article labelled Planet Normal, leave a comment beneath it, and I will reply from 11am to noon. It is you, our fantastic Telegraph readers and Planet Normal listeners who absolutely make this podcast. We learn so much from you and are thrilled that our community is growing. Do keep emailing us, and as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers Louisa Wells, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampett, and our editor, the fabulous Theodora Leloudis. Stay safe and stay in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. <laughs> <laughs>